Colossians chapter 2 is an amazing scripture. And before we get there, I do just want to make some comments. Uh, obviously, at the end of last year, it was the end of a decade. Um, it was also the end of the first decade of the life of this church, which I think is an amazing, amazing thing. Uh, we celebrate in April, we will celebrate our 10th birthday as a church. And uh, I felt God speak to me on holiday. We had, a, we had a great time with our family. I felt God speak to me and just say a very simple thing, that we need to celebrate everything of the last 10 years, this year, as we move towards April. We need to celebrate the good stuff, and sometimes we want to ignore the, the tough times and pretend that they weren't there. But I think we need to celebrate even the tough times, because those things have produced in us what's, it, what's been needed to bring us to this point now of where we are. And so I want to celebrate everything of the last 10 years and look forward with great anticipation into the next 10 years. I, I was listening to um, one of the politicians speak, and uh, he simply said that the last 10 years have been probably the most prosperous this country has ever known, and I think that's true. I think we have lived in an amazing decade of prosperity and material wealth, and perhaps the next 10 years are not going to be like that. But I want to say this, whatever the situation is, God is our provider, and He's always the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what He birthed in us and what He's been doing over the last 10 years will continue into the next for as long as this church is in His, in his heart. Amen? And I believe that with all of my heart. So I'd like to just look at one phrase in particular as an introduction. We've, we've talked a lot in the last year and a half about the unknown path, all right, as a metaphor of what God is doing with us as a church. And perhaps we could have used a different phrase. Perhaps we could have used this phrase, the ancient path, rather than the unknown path. The reason being for that is quite simple, is that the path that God is taking us on is not unknown to Him. It's a very definite path. It's not unknown. It has boundaries. It has, it has uh, uh, areas within, within which we walk. And so perhaps it would have been better, in retrospect, to have called this the ancient path that God has taken, taking us on. And it's not a path that has not been walked before. Abraham has walked it. David has walked it. Many of the great heroes of the Bible have walked this ancient path. It is simply the path of faith. And so in that sense, it's not unknown to us. It is known. But we don't know the fullness of what God is taking us into because we want to be led by the Spirit. So how can you possibly know the fullness of what God is taking you into? If you do, then it's not a walk by the Spirit. It's simply a walk by our mental ascent to certain things, to doctrines perhaps, to the way that we've always done things. And that's what we are fleeing from, and we are embracing a life of faith. Amen. That's what it is. So can I just take a moment? There are four things I want to say this morning, and perhaps next time I'll say another four, to try and, in a sense, put some meat to the bones of what the, the ancient path might look like. Well, the first thing I want to say is that the ancient path is a walk of both the Word and the Spirit. And I am aware that when I say these things, it might seem very general, but I trust over the next year, God will make, bring more and more detail to us and to you that you will understand this with greater and greater, greater revelation as God is doing in all of our hearts, all right? It's a walk of faith. It's a walk of the Spirit. It's a path. The boundaries on the one hand are the Word, and the boundary on the other hand is the Spirit. And as we learn to hear the voice of God, He will lead us step by step down this unknown ancient path. It means imperative to that is that we, we learn the ways of the Master, Jesus. We learn the ways of the Master, and we learn the whispering of the Spirit in our ear. 
And for me, that has meant taking, not, no longer leaning upon the opinions of men or upon my own understanding, but in my own life, God has taken me on this journey of not just taking on what people have handed down to us, many good things, but there are subtle things, there are delicacies in the processes of God that He can only let us into as we open our ears and we hear the whispers of the Spirit in our ear and we are obedient to those whispers. And that is a fundamentally different point of departure for us. And it has some practical applications. What does that mean? It means that at the beginning of this year, previously, in the, many, the, the, the years that have gone before, we have planned our year in great detail. Uh, we know every month what we are going to do. We've planned outreaches. We've done a whole lot of stuff. I'm not saying we're not going to do that. But what I am saying is we want to embrace far more a day by day, month by month, walk by the Spirit, where we hear God, God, what do you want us to do this week? Who do you want us to phone this week? Who needs visiting? You hear what I'm saying? Rather than this planned out calendar that is just like a juggernaut that carries on. You get on the, tr- on, on the escalator in the, at the beginning of the year and you slowly move through the year to the end. It, that is, for me, it has been boring. It has been crushing. I cannot do it anymore. I've left that. All right? And I want you to enjoy this amazing adventure of the walk by the Spirit with us. It is an amazing adventure. Perhaps for you it's a terrifying thing. Well, it's terrifying for me, but I'd rather be terrified in the hand of God than be absolutely confident and on the, my own escalator. And He is good. And His, His, His heart towards us is always good. His mercy is on you every morning, every day. Out of that, I simply want to say some of the reasons why we've done some things in the, in the last year, moving away from a formal relationship with an apostolic structure, is simply this. Because anything that suffocates the life of God or forces us to comply outside of what the Spirit says is denomination. And we want to leave that. And we want to fully embrace a walk with the Spirit, fully embrace an intimacy with Him, fully embrace a deep friendship with people that, joins, that God has joined our hearts to. Am I making sense to you this morning? Secondly, this path is a walk of the gospel of grace. Again, a general thing, but can I perhaps try and bring some detail to it? Part of walking the ancient path is leaving behind mindsets of formal religion, of perhaps missional theology uh, that that have taken the place of the centrality of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives. And we have said over and over again last year that we want to come back to the centrality of Christ, the centrality of the gospel. And there was Wesley said this, if the world is not your parish, then your parish is your world. And I can understand on one, one sense what he was trying to say, but we can only be responsible for the, air, the, the sphere that God gives us. I cannot be responsible for the world, nor can you. God is responsible for the world. I'm responsible for what God has gifted me to be responsible for here with a whole bunch of other people as a team. That's our sphere. And we have to flee behind this pressure, leave behind this pressure of that it's upon us to save the world. It ain't upon us to save the world. It's God's responsibility to save the world. His heart has always been to the world. It's our responsibility to get on and to cultivate this field that God has called us to. And He will keep us connected across the world with people out of friendship, not out of structure, not out of denomination. 
Are you with me? Our vision cannot be leadership. Our vision cannot be church planning. As good as those things are, they are not the center. They are not the door. Jesus is the door through which everyone must enter, not only for eternal life, but for the fullness of what God has for us here on earth and the fullness of what God has for us in heaven. Jesus is the door. No one else. Nothing else. And our desire as a leadership team is that this year we want to give ourselves to preaching the living doctrine of Christ. We've done our best, I think, as God has brought revelation, but more and more to preach the living doctrine of Christ. We want people to stand on their own two feet. We want you to become mature, every single one of you, that you can reproduce out of the testimony of your life and what God has done in your life. You can help others to become mature and stand, not as babies anymore, but as men and women of God, sons and daughters of the Most High. That's what our desire is. The only way that is going to come is that if Christ is formed in you and Christ is formed in me and Christ is formed in you and I by the preaching of the Word of God, nothing else. By the living doctrine of Jesus. Of Jesus. That's why Paul, the cry of his heart was, I labor with all of my strength to see Christ formed in you. So our job is to preach, to teach, to live the gospel of Jesus and bring others into the same freedom that we enjoy. Every single one of us, that is our job. And I love what Luther said, I've quoted it before, but he said, the job of anyone preaching is to beat the gospel into his own head and his own heart and then to beat it into the hearts of everyone that is listening to him. That's what he said. That's our job. That the Christ is formed in us and Christ is formed in you as you hear the word of God. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Uh, we uh, had the privilege of having Michael Eaton here last year in, 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 uh, in April and he did that wonderful uh, teaching, 10 sermons. If you haven't listened to them, please go online and listen to them uh, on the doctrine of the local church. And one of the things that he, he said repeatedly that has brought freedom to us in terms of our own theology as a church is this simple thing. If we walk by the Spirit deliberately, we'll fulfill the law accidentally. Terry Virgo said it like this. Grace releases you from the fear of condemnation, assuring you that God has fully accepted you, always loved you, and always will. You are safe and free. The church isn't meant to be introverted and preoccupied with rule book religion. It's called to arise and shine and spread the message of lavish grace to a blind and suffering world. Grace doesn't lead to passivity, but to outrageous adventure, a lifestyle that baffles only those who play safe. It threatens the status quo, not only of tentative religion, but also of cynical unbelief. It sets the church free to risk all for the praise of him who freely gave everything for us. Isn't that beautiful? That is the gospel. That's what we want to give ourselves to wholeheartedly. Thirdly, this ancient path is a, way of pre- is a path of preaching the living word, as I've already alluded to. What I want to say when I say we preach the word, I want to make it clear that in that when we say we preach the word, we're not just preaching a, a set of rules and regulation and dry law. And if you do this, this God will bless you. And if you don't do that, God will curse you. We're talking about re- preaching the word that reveals a person and the person is Jesus. 
We want the person of Jesus to be revealed. And we can turn the scripture, we can turn the word of God, we can turn this word into a simple set of rules and regulations for people to follow. The Bible is rooted in real men and women's lives, and the real people reveal another real person who is Jesus through his work in their lives. And that is what we want to see formed in every single person, the living Christ. We don't want to be moral, uh, prescription, prescriptive people who just comply to a, a set of compulsions. If I tithe, God will protect me. If I don't tithe, the, the devourer will, re- will come and devour all my things. What is that? That's not the gospel of grace. We tithe out of a gen- we give out of a generosity, and I hope it is a tithe at least. I love what Eden said. We become super tithers. All that we have is God's, and we give it generously. Not uh, how little can I give just to satisfy God? (laughs) No, Lord, all all I have is yours. I'm so grateful. You take what you need. If I'm a good man, God will bless me. If I'm sinful, God's blessings will fall to the floor. What is that? That's cause and effect religion. That is not what we want to give ourselves to. I want to give ourselves to the gospel of grace. When we think like that as a church, these are the kind of phrases that might go around in our head. What really does an elder do? What does he do with all his time? How do we make the church grow? Just what is the formula to make the church grow and get the people in? That, that's cause and effect. That's not, that's, not, that's not the way of grace. Are you with me? What it does in the end is our friendship with God is depersonalized. We lose our, set, we lose our joy There's no longer a sense of romance in our hearts when we think of Jesus. All we have is predictable Christian lifestyle that is absolutely boring. How many of you want that this year? (laughs) I don't. No, it's a walk of faith. Jesus leads us by His Spirit. Christ is our full blessing. He's, we celebrated at the table. He's broken the curse of the law over our lives. He's broken the curse of sin. Here's the, the flow of history. Jesus is the center and the flow of history. And into that big flow of history comes our little life. And we fit our little life into the flow of all eternity. That's the perspective we need to hold in our hearts. Nick wrote something this week to me, and it's, he said this, the Bible describes life by faith. It does not describe faith for life. It is an open door into God, not a closed room full of facts. I love that. It's an open door into God. That's what the Bible is. And fourthly, this ancient path, and I hope I haven't taken too long, it's a path of the priesthood of all believers. And again, you might have heard that over and over again, but we are a kingdom of priests, every single one of us. This is a spiritual house. This is not a charity. This is not an institution. This is a spiritual house where we represent the interests of Jesus Christ above all. That's why we get together week after week. There's no other reason that we get together. And there's a beautiful diversity in the house of God. We look different. Thank God for that. One thing I didn't say to you is that yesterday we celebrated 17 years of marriage. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. And... Helen has done well. Yes, she has. She has done very well to endure me for 17 years. But it's been a great journey, hey? And it's a wonderful parallel marriage. You don't really know what's going to happen when you get married. You love that person 
completely as far as you understand, but 17 years down the line, you love them in a completely different way. It's just so much deeper, so much richer, so much more fruitful, and there's so much that God has done in you through your spouse and through each other and through the hard times and the good times. It's beautiful. It's like a walk of faith. I didn't really know what I was doing when I got married. I know I loved Helen, but you don't know what you're signing up for when you get married. You really don't. There's a beautiful diversity that we need to celebrate in the church. I have some things that God has gifted me to do that are specific to me, to my personality, for whatever. There are others in this church that God has given gifts to them that are different from our, my gift. And that is a beautiful thing. And I want to say that this year, let this church be so secure, every one of us be so secure, that we really can celebrate every single gift that God has given to this church without being threatened without being insecure. It's part of the new path that God is taking us onto. Now, can we come to a place where we genuinely celebrate every single gift? What do I mean by that? Well, in the past, uh, my role has been that of a lead elder, right? Lead elder. Now, the lead elder did probably everything. Did. So the lead elder preached most. The lead elder did training, leadership training. And every other kind of training, marriage, enrichment, wada, 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 wada. Being responsible for the finances of the church, paying people's salaries, setting their salaries with, with, with help from other, other people, of course. But you know what? I think that needs to change. I am happy to be the captain of the team. It's what God has called me to do. But if this church is going to reach its full potential of what God has for it, we need to get a place where we can celebrate every single gift. Those that are great preachers, let them preach. Those that are great teachers, let them teach. Those that can lead worship, let them lead worship with all of their hearts. Those that are good at, at doing stuff with kids, let them do it. Those that are hospitable, let them be hospitable. Let's celebrate everything. I don't want to be a bottleneck. I want to break open the bottle so that the Spirit can come. For as much as I can do that. Are you hearing me? So that means my role is going to change. And I, I want to say when I say that, it is with happiness in my heart that I say my role is going to change. It is not a, it's not a bad thing. It is a good thing. I want it to change. I don't want to be the jack of all trades and the master of none. I want to enjoy the gifts that God has given me. And if there are two gifts, I want to celebrate them with you and join them together with every other gift that is in this church so that we can have a multiplicity of gifts in this church. So don't feel insecure. If I don't preach every week, it doesn't mean that I'm not the captain. Can I put it as bluntly as that? If I don't lead worship every week, it doesn't mean I'm not the captain. We get together regularly with the leaders and we talk and we pray and we say, what should we do? And God help us by the Spirit. Are you with me? It was like John the Baptizer. He said, Christ must increase and we must decrease. That is true for every single one of us in this building. Jesus needs to get bigger and we need to get less. Amen. And in the same way as we find our gifts individually, I want to say this is going to be a year where this church finds its corporate gifting. It's corporate anointing. Why has God called this church here? What does God have for us in the next 10 years? And that's only going to happen as different groups of people with a different passion and interest join together 
to become a supernatural, prophetic, compassionate, worshipful family. That's the only way it's going to happen. And now I'm spitting all over the place. And for that to happen, I want to say this also, that for those of us that do preach and teach more often, there has to be a radical space in our diaries created where we can prayerfully read and pray every week to prepare living bread without feeling guilty that we should be doing something else. Can I tell you as a lead elder, there's always an email. There's always a text. There is always a phone call. It is never ending. And I'm not asking for... for, uh, for sympathy, I'm just saying that's the reality of how it is. There's always something else you can be doing rather than sitting and digging into the Word of God. And sometimes you feel guilty when you don't answer the call. I want to live free of that. We want a team around us in this church of highly gifted men and women that do what God has called them to do. And that's the only way this church is going to go from hundreds to thousands. That's the only way. And I do believe God wants to grow the church. Why? So we can have radical impact into the community. That's the only reason he wants his kingdom to come. All right. Are you still happy that you came? Good. I want to read a poem that I didn't write, that Helen wrote, just before we left, which tried to describe this thing of moving down the unknown path, and then we're going to go into two Colossians. Sorry, Colossians 2. (laughs) See, we need those that know the scripture, right? We definitely do. Down the unknown path. As I wandered through the woods, I came upon a path. The snow had newly fallen and its stillness, stillness echoed forth. The crunch of footsteps left its trail as I started on the unknown way. And in the cool and the dampened air, I heard a voice call so true. It sang a song with a sweetened tune, and in the words I heard my name. Come away with me, my darling. Let me take you by the hand. There was no fear, though the path was steep and down below the cliffs fell, like slices from the mountain peak. I felt within a certainty I knew the voice that had called to me. This journey so new was filled with surprise and delight. But then I began to think of all I had learned of walking in the hills. It was a strange and a dangerous thing. There could be so many ills. My fears beset me like wolves with leering eyes. The once fresh air swirled curtly and now filled me with icy shivers. Where was I going? What lay on the other side? And just as surely as my doubts had crept like fiendish dogs, the voice that called my name whispered in the fog, and like vapors in the winter air, my imagining scampered off. Once again, I heard the song that filled my heart with cheer, a voice of my lover beckoning me near. He said, never will I leave you, never will you be alone. This path so fresh has no guidelines for its use. No approved regulations or manuals too. Instead, it's a road of faith, of listening for the Spirit's voice saying, stay a while or go there now. So when you hear His voice call to you down His path of the unknown, don't tell yourself it can't be done without a map or a compass or a rope. Lay down your rucksack on the ground and listen for His whispers and soon 
the way ahead will be found. That's the path we want to walk on together this year. That we're already on, and that we're going to learn more fully to enjoy as God leads us by the Spirit. Having said that, can you please go with me, Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. One of the things that I felt out of our time on holiday, God really clearly speak to me out of what He's doing in my own life. It's one of the things I've really battled with over many years. It's simply a very simple thing. How to live a sanctified life. <laughs> How to be a holy person. And I don't mean that in a flippant way. But the Bible says we too must be holy like Christ, like He, God, is holy. What an awesome thing to even contemplate that He calls us to be holy. But I'd like to start in verse 20 of chapter 2. It says this. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That is a powerful, powerful little portion. It fully describes Paul's heart in saying, it's not an outside in religion. It's not about don't eat that, don't touch that, and you will be acceptable before God if you do these things. It's an inside-out religion, a life of faith, a life of relationship, a life of passion with Christ. That's what it is. And this question of how to live a holy life has, has boggled people for centuries, and people have had different responses to this age-old question. And if you know a little of church history, the monastic movement was exactly that. We become holy by separating ourselves completely from the world and going up a mountain and growing our own grapes and making our own wine as the monks did, as I discovered in, in Germany and France. They were very good at that and they had their little monastic life. And the only problem is this, that Jesus said, we are a light to the world. <laughs> Don't hide your light under a bushel. How can you be a light to the world when you're stuck up a mountain all by yourself? Jesus was called a friend of sinners. He lived a righteous life in the midst of unbelief and sinfulness. That's what he calls us to, not to get up a mountain somewhere and separate ourselves from the world. It's, it's, it's unacceptable. Secondly, others have preached that we are, have a second blessing, if you like, of entire sanctification. That at the cross we are completely sanctified. Well, I just want to say I think it's fundamentally dishonest. Because any, of, any one of you that has lived for more than one minute knows that sin oozes out of your body, pore by pore, every moment of every day. Yes, we are sanctified. But God has got a work to do within us by the Spirit. It's incomplete. We cannot give ourselves to that theology. Others have said all we need is encounters with the Holy Spirit. Well, I want to say this. I've had powerful encounters with the Holy Spirit, numerous encounters with the Holy Spirit, but I want to say this to you. They are not enough to live a lifetime. You cannot live from one experience of the Holy Spirit to the next. There's something much deeper that God needs to root in us by the power of the Spirit, that same Spirit. And others have tried to emphasize holiness. And what they end up doing 
is they major on things that are not really central to being godly. And what do you end up with? You end up with a life of compulsion, a life of rules. And this is what Paul says we don't give ourselves to in this portion of Scripture. Do not touch this. Do not go there. Do not do this. It's just compulsion and legalism. None of those things are satisfactory. And I would like to look at, at, at you, with you over the next couple of weeks. How do, we get on, how do we pursue this journey of living a godly life? I mean, what does it really mean? What do we need to identify? What do we look for? I mean, the, the theological word is this thing of sanctification. And much of what, I say, what I'm going to say comes out of reading over the last couple of months. Uh, Michael Eaton, Terry Virgo, some of Nick's stuff in particular, those three influences. And it's, it's, it's come out of my own motivation, my own desire to find out for myself, to answer the question for myself, how do I live a holy life? I want to please God with all of my heart. And in many ways, I feel completely unqualified to preach on holiness <laughs> because I know how far I fall short of the mark. But I'm happy to say I feel like as God is teaching me, that brings me liberty to actually just share some of these things that God is showing me. And who can ever claim to be an expert on holiness anyway? All right? And it seems to me there are two extremes that we can fall into. One is the trap of self-righteousness, and the other, on the other extreme is the trap of absolute despair. <laughs> it's those two pillars, those two extremes. And there's a beautiful portion in Luke 18 where Jesus tells this parable of this Pharisee that goes to the temple. And I'm going to read it to you. You don't have to go there. It's verse four, 9 to 14 of Luke 18. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I tithe on everything that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus makes it absolutely plain that every single one of us can fall into the delusion of self-righteousness. That we're okay. That we are righteous and holy and we just do a couple of things to please God and that's all He wants. But equally tragic is when we fall into the other mistake. I think even the least sensitive of us cannot think for a moment long of what it means to be a godly person without being tempted to despair. <laughs> I think of my own life in the last couple of years, what I've had to confront in myself. Uh, there's been some deep-rooted anger and disappointment, a desire to get even that has shocked me. Even a desire sometimes to just say, like uh, <laughs> Malcolm McIntyre, do you want some? Do you want some? Just come and I will enjoy smacking you in the face. And even if you take me down, that will give me pleasure. Have you ever felt like that? That shocked me. 
I felt that in myself. There's sometimes a, a short-temperedness with Helen, a short-temperedness with the boys. There have been moments of crushing black despair. And I can identify with Churchill when he says the black dog came upon him. I know what it is to labor under a black dog where you just feel crushed. You cannot sleep at night. You wake up early. You go to bed late. You cannot enjoy anything. It's just this depression, this despair that crushes you. And now I want to, I want to preach about being a holy person. Well, this week I read something that I found absolutely beautiful and just reminded me of the one thing that I have learned in the last two years. It's from John Bunyan. And he wrote a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And it says this, One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So that whenever, wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? For it is always before him. I saw that it's not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better or my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Christ. Now my chains indeed fell off. My temptations fled away and I lived sweetly at peace with God. Now I could look from myself to Him and could reckon that all my character was like the coins a rich man carries in his pocket when all his gold is safe in a trunk at home. I saw that my gold was indeed a trunk at home in Christ my Lord. Now Christ was all. My righteousness, my sanctification, my redemption. My friends, our confidence alone is in that. We are not supposed to sin. We're not. Paul says, if you sin. But we do sin. But any of Christ's people that sin have this amazing testimony that we have an advocate. He is seated at the right hand of God himself and his name is Jesus. And I want to ask you to run to him. He's the righteous one. I want to ask you to flee to him. He's the perfect intercessor on your behalf. And when you feel that compulsion, that uh, sense of absolute despair come upon you because of sin in your life, you run to the cross. You run back to Jesus. You say, Lord, your blood is sufficient for me. I think that's part of what God is teaching us on this ancient path that we're walking on. We do need to be concerned about our personal holiness, indeed. But we don't come at it directly, we come at it indirectly. It's a byproduct of something else. It's a byproduct of a passionate love affair with Jesus. That's what it is. It's a byproduct. Ephesians 2.19 says we are not saved by our good works or out of our good works, but we are saved for good works. You are saved not just for the sake of being saved, you are saved into the kingdom of grace so that you can live a godly life. That's why you're saved. It is. In fact, the scripture says grace trains us to live a godly life, but it's never our godliness that justifies us or glorifies us. It's God who justifies us and glorifies us. And once that's settled in our hearts, then we can start even thinking about sanctification. Are you with me? Good. Thanks, Trev. Um, so how can we think about this thing of living a holy life without giving into self-righteousness and without giving into despair? I think it's possible And I want to quote Michael Eaton. He says, um, the New Testament, there are three things that, uh, ways that we can think about 
uh, sanctification or holiness. The first is found in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, where Paul writes to the church, and he talks about our position as saints when we are saved. And he writes to the church in Corinth, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. When we are saved, we are sanctified. Secondly, God is continually in work in us as His people to make us a holy people. There are many scriptures, just one, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brothers beloved of the Lord, because God has made from the beginning and chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. God is at work in us all the time. And thirdly, there's a habit of holy living that God would encourage us in daily. 1 Peter 1 verse 15. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to your former lusts in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conversation. That's what the scripture says. So holiness is separating ourselves. It's growing up in Christ. It's the opposite of uncleanness. You can look at Romans 6.19, Ephesians 5.26. There are many, many scriptures. You put it another way, holiness is openness. It's Christ-likeness. It's purity. It's separating ourselves for God and separating ourselves from impurity. Holiness doesn't mean niceness. It doesn't mean morality. There are nice, moral pagans. There are. I know some nice moral pagans. They are great people, but nice moral paganness has got nothing to do with Christian holiness. It's not legalism either. Holiness is not legalism. It's not harshness. It's not exclusiveness. We studied Galatians last year, remember? In detail. One thing can be said of the Galatians. They loved the law of Moses. They were legalistic. They were not holy. Why did I say that? Well, Galatians 5.14 says, You butt and devour each other. What holy people butt and devour each other? That's not what the church should look like. We can't be holy and have a critical spirit at the same time. It's impossible. Holiness is refusing defensiveness, refusing envy, refusing jealousy, refusing irritation, refusing lust, refusing self-centeredness. It's freedom from doing things to be seen by others that you're doing the right thing. It's freedom from ambition, from manipulation, from pride. And I hope in your heart right now you're saying that is impossible. I hope you are. And I'm going to labor this point because it is completely impossible but for the blood of Jesus, but for a life by the Spirit. It is completely impossible to do this on your own. Absolutely. I, I don't want you to leave this morning feeling like this is a list of do's and don'ts, because it ain't. I'm just trying to point myself to my last three points, which, which I say it, it is completely impossible without the blood of Christ daily on your life and the Spirit leading you daily. It's impossible. Holiness is assurance of faith. A holy person is confident in God, confident that he's saved, confident in God's word. Holiness is daily obedience. Lord, what would you have me to do, do today? Holiness, thirdly, is, is, is graciousness towards yourself. I'm amazed how many of us are hard on ourselves, won't forgive ourselves, always hard and snappy. 
Why? Because if you're not gracious towards yourself, you cannot be gracious towards others. You can't extend that grace that you don't feel for yourself. And one of the things that we try to learn in our family is to speak kindly. Because when you're short-tempered and irritable, it's because you don't really have grace for yourself. And when you don't have grace for yourself, you're feeling guilty and condemned, you don't have grace for those closest to you. God doesn't condemn us, so we shouldn't condemn ourselves. And if we are gracious toward ourselves, we can be gracious, and our graciousness will flow to others. Next point. I'm uh, just going to mention these. Holiness is, prever- is perseverance. Perseverance in tough times. We can trust God for tomorrow just as we can trust Him from, for, for today. Tomorrow might not be the same as today is, but we can trust Him for our daily needs. I love praying the, the believer's prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give us this day our daily bread. I'm saying this. I'm not prophesying it, but I'm saying this. I'm saying that we're going to have to trust God for our daily bread, some of us, this year. Our daily bread. And that's okay. Because he says, he's never, we've, there's never a righteous man who's left on the streets begging for bread. He will give us our daily bread. Holiness is setting ourselves apart to do God's work. What did Jesus say in John 4, 34? My food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. I love this one. Holiness is freedom from introspection. Freedom from introspection. Oh, unlike the Pharisee of Luke, uh, Luke 18. That we can know that the good that, is in our, that God is producing out of our lives, we don't have to be introspective about it. Always like, oh God, have I done the right thing? What are people going to say? No, we can live free of introspection. That's what it means to be holy. Holiness is enjoying the liberty of God's Spirit. Being led by the Spirit, enjoying the journey. Freeing ourselves from tradition and condemnation and guilt. It's the freedom to enjoy God every day. I want you to enjoy God every day. I want to enjoy God every day. His mercies on you. Holiness is living for the audience of one. Holiness is living for the audience of one. Matthew 6 talks about our praying. And it talks about our giving. And it talks about our um, fasting. Our praying has to do with our relationship with God. Our giving has to do with our generosity with other people. And our fasting has to do with our disciplining of our own bodies. And what does Jesus say? The crux of what he says is, when you do those things, do them for the audience of one. Your Father in heaven who sees everything, not so that anyone else can see what you do, but for the audience of one, you do those things as an act of worship. Cheapers, it's hot in here. I never thought I'd say that. I'm sweating. I'm nearly finished. Holiness is a purity of heart that leads us to being conscious of Him. What did we learn out of Matthew uh, last year? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When our hearts are pure, we can, be see, we can begin to see the glory of God everywhere. Isaiah saw the glory of God. It's possible to see the glory of God here on earth now as well as His glory in heaven one day. Holiness is living for God's glory. And we are happy to live for God's glory when we ourselves don't get the glory. That's a, that's, a, that's a sign, isn't it? Are we happy when someone else does well? But ultimately, it's God that gets the glory. Holiness is having nothing to hide. It's an openness. It's a fearlessness as we live our lives. It's not being evasive. It's possible when our conscience is clear 
We can have that relationship with God and with men. I've had the, the, oh, the pain of the last couple of years of, of uh, walking down the road and seeing some people who don't particularly like me and they ignore me. They won't even say hello. Won't say hello to my kids or my family. I find that incredibly hurtful on one level, but incredibly immature on another. Why? Because Jesus says if you can't even love your enemies, if, if I'm an enemy to anyone, I hope I don't have enemies, but if I am, am an enemy to someone, Jesus says at least you can still love your enemies. That's the way of grace. Isn't it? It is. Holiness is having nothing to hide. It's not being evasive. It's not avoiding people. It's living open. It's living absolutely without fear. Holiness is patience. I don't like that one. It's being able to submit to God's time in your life without giving in to panic. <laughs> without, that's the, yeah. oh God, I trust you for eternity. But help me right now, please God. It's easy to trust God for eternity sometimes. Sometimes not so easy to trust God for tomorrow, for your daily bread for tomorrow. And this, for me, is, a, is, is another one that I don't particularly like. Holiness is loving everyone everywhere. <laughs> Holiness is loving everyone everywhere. Galatians 5.14, it's a very powerful little scripture. It, 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 uh, the, the church is encouraged by Paul to love their neighbor as themselves. And as he says, this is the great focus. We need to love our neighbor as ourselves. I want to say this. It's easy, in one sense, to fool ourselves that we love God. And we, we do love God. I'm not saying we don't. But, oh God, I love you passionately. But you know, if you love God passionately, it translates into loving other people. It's not so easy to fool yourself about loving your neighbor. <laughs> That's where the crux, the real test, is whether our love for God translates and leads to love for all people. So, maybe that list has kind of piled in on you. And, and, and as I was talking to Helen uh, in the car and just telling her what I was going to share. She said, my darling, if, it's, if you're going to pr- sh- pr- uh, share that this morning, my personality will tend to kind of like, I've got to do this. Well, I don't want you, any of you to leave with that. And that's why I want to come back to what I said before. All of this is impossible, absolutely impossible, without the blood of Jesus. It's impossible. All right? <laughs> It's impossible without the blood of Jesus. And so let's come back to the cross. Let's run to the great intercessor. Let's run to Jesus every day of our lives. It's possible in Him. Secondly, I want to say this, that we need to have compassion for each other. Why? Because we all have different weaknesses. Some things I battle with might not be the thing that you battle with. Either they can make you critical of me and say, well, I don't battle with that. Or I can have compassion motivated in you to pray for me as I need to pray for all of you. Are you with me? So it's a completely different thing. Rather, let's have compassion. And thirdly, how we need the Spirit of God. How we need the Spirit of God. To even attempt to look at this without the Holy Spirit is absolutely impossible. I don't know how anyone can live a Christian life without the, 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 the kindness, the grace, the compassion, the love, the, the intimate relationship of the Holy Spirit in our lives daily. I don't know how it's possible. How do you do it? It must be crushing. It must just be absolutely despairing. <laughs> I thought I was on a roll there, Trevor. You got we, need a, we need a miracle. We need a, a miracle of 